Hi, this is Trish McGregor. This is just a note to let you know that the Mystical Underground will be hosting both uh, Andrew McPherson and Jude Curvan together on a special video podcast on June 11th. Hope you could join us. We all have a lot of questions for Jude. Thanks. And Rob McGregor welcome you to a place where all kinds of phenomena flourish. Voices whisper, ancient secrets, signs and symbols are abundant. UFOs, ETs, ghosts, and even the dead move about freely. Here we meet authors, researchers, and investigators of the mysterious, the strange, and of the inexplicable anomalies that surround us. Step out of the everyday world and take a journey into the mystical underground. Welcome to the mystical underground. Thank you for joining us. This is Rob McGregor and Trish McGregor and our tech magician producer, John Posey. You can go to themysticalunderground.com where we make regular uh, posts and where you can find out about our books. Our most recent nonfiction book is called The Shift, Reports from the Mystical Underground. Trisha's latest novel is White Crows and Rob's latest novel is Tulpas, now available in audio as well as print and eBooks. Our guest today is Jude Kuravan, a PhD, cosmologist, futurist, planetary healer. She's a lot of things. I keep going on. Member of the Evolutionary Leaders Circle and previously one of the most senior businesswomen in the UK. She has a master's degree in physics from Oxford and a doctorate in archaeology from the University of Reading. She's traveled extensively, worked with wisdom keepers from many traditions, and is a lifelong researcher into the nature of reality. She's the author of six books, including The Cosmic Hologram, and is co-founder of Whole World View. Her newest book is the story of Gaia, the big breath, and the evolutionary journey of our conscious planet. Welcome, Jude. We're glad hey, you could make it. Welcome, Jude. <laughs> well, Rob Trish, it's lovely to be with you, and thanks to our maestro, John. It's good to meet you. <laughs> All right. So, how, uh, Jude? How would you just start out? How would you summarize your book briefly? It's complex, that's for sure. I'm sorry. It, it is, but it's also a story. It literally is uh-huh. a story of our universe, going right. back to uh, the first moment, 13.8 billion years ago. And as I describe it, not in the Big Bang, which were, were taught, it wasn't big, and it wasn't a bang in the sense that it was, instead of implying that it was chaotic, it was incredibly fine-tuned and exquisitely ordered to the extent that our universe embodied an evolutionary impulse from that very first moment, from simplicity to complexity and eventually to us. So I described that journey as as the big breath, you know, it was the first moment of an ongoing big breath as space expanded and time slowed ever since. And so instead of the old paradigm that we're taught of essentially a dead and meaningless and purposeless universe, what the evidence is now doing is turning that completely on its head. And so we're seeing that we are, you know, the microcosmic co-creators of an innately meaningful and purposeful 
universe that literally exists to evolve. So that's the whole story of Gaia, because Gaia is the name that the ancient Greeks gave to the earth goddess. So what I'm talking about now is the evidence of a living universe and therefore a sentient planetary home. And, and that whole journey, which is quite extraordinary. Um, and I, I love to, to sort of hear your responses to it, because a lot of folks are saying that the book is reading them. It's almost as though Gaia sitting down <laughs> and telling them her story and huh. the story of our entire universe, <clears throat> our important, vital role in its, you know, in its evolutionary impulse. So I like I like those <laughs> I like those introduction uh, sections you have at the beginning of your chapters that uh, they seem to be Gaia or the, the universe speaking uh, in those uh -huh. parts and uh, you sometimes as well so it's 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 interesting uh, well, what were you doing what was your intention with with those sections that you have in well, italics yeah I mean as as you were saying earlier in Trisha's very kind introduction I've written other books I mean the story of Gaia is the seventh. The Cosmic Hologram was a sixth. Yeah. So, and I never meant to be an author. I never <laughs> set out to be an author. Um, it so happened that, you know, very kindly publishers were just told that I might be able to write before I'd written anything <laughs> and, invite, and invited me to be an author for them. So um, uh -huh. it's been a wonderful journey. Um, but that, that that idea of those intros to the chapters was my husband's idea. Yeah. Because he felt that it would bring a deeper sense of experiential, uh -huh. you know, relationship. Yeah, it does. Right. Yeah. And and I loved it. So I really sort of asked Gaia, what should I do here? And I've been very fortunate to have a lot of uh, journeying in my life, you know, multidimensionally walking between worlds as well as, as in amazing places. Yeah. In and some I, ways, it seems like you were channeling Gaia. Yeah, I, uh -huh. I, I, I feel that that was the case. Uh -huh. Yeah. Talk to us about. And I feel very privileged, and I feel incredibly honoured and privileged because I really did do feel, Rob and Trish, that the the book wrote me just as readers are uh, saying, you know, Gaia's you know, <laughs> sitting down and and sharing her story with us. Wow. I did feel the book wrote me in that sense. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, talk about the the role of sound in the universe and the creation of the universe, the primordial alm as uh, being the sound and impulse of the romantic breath of creation that sang our universe into being and it's described in the Upanishads the ancient mm -hmm. Vedic uh, text but also now you say has uh, scientific connections absolutely uh, well what we know is when we do go back to that very first moment of the big breath the first moment of space and time where our universe was born or the appearance of our universe was born because we now also appreciate that its appearance of energy and matter and space and time emerge from deep and non-physical realms of causation this is its all meaningful all purposeful all pervasive um sort of appearance um and so if we go back to that very beginning, it was the hottest it's ever been, but it was not disordered because there were primordial magnetic fields that really ordered that incredible temperature huh. that was trillions upon trillions of times hotter than the hottest stars. Nonetheless, it was part of the way in which the sort of the laws of physics were able to relate and set off our universe on this incredible evolutionary journey. But because it was so hot, atoms could not form. The, the basic, you know, the basic particularization of energy and matter 
was was still in its very, very, very early process. So the universe would not cool down enough as space expanded to be transparent to light and therefore the formation of atoms until about 380,000 years along its journey. But at the very beginning, it was transparent to sound. And so we now know, we can even know the sort of the, it seems that there were three a sort of waves of three notes that pulsed through that very early epoch of the universe hmm. uh, and essentially began over that 380,000 years or so to shepherd the very earliest matter into what would become hundreds of millions of years later, the first stars. So this, as, as Rob, you said, reflects the Upanishads. It reflects this sense of a, a primordial om that sang our universe into being. And the other thing that I find fascinating is the best science we've got of the way that happened were effectively three notes. In other words, three vibrationary levels of that sound. And of course, uh-huh. when we're taught how to, to you know, work with the OM, it's A-O-U, A-A-U-M, OM. So it's not a single note. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what we're finding in that first epoch of our mm-hmm. universe. What what do you think, uh, Jude, Co- Gaia's purpose was with COVID? <laughs> uh, thank you for this question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not, I, I wouldn't presume to speak for Gaia on this one, mm-hmm. <laughs> but my own sense um, is that, first of all, when, when, when the book, I do write about viruses mm-hmm. because they are one of the oldest, if not the oldest, of, of, of Gaia's biological children, of biological organisms, and they're essentially her simplest. They, they've evolved, uh. whereas most of her biosphere has evolved from simplicity to complexity, they've evolved to ever greater levels of simplicity. But nonetheless, in their simplicity is great intelligence, hmm. because we know now that viruses have language that they can actually communicate with each other. And not only do they have language, they have dialects. So groups of viruses can communicate amongst themselves. And we know, and this is in the book too, that there's research to suggest that they make a conscious choice as to whether to kill their hosts or enter some form of symbiotic relationship with them. And the whole story of Gaia's biological evolutionary journey is where viruses have been evolutionary change agents and what we know is that the evolution of of Gaia's biology biosphere has not been a linear progression it's been a series of waves and then collapses waves and collapses but at every collapse point it's been generally I mean there have been occasions when it's (laughs) You know, it's been through an asteroid, for example, with the, with the dinosaurs, but where the dominant species have almost come to a, a cul-de-sac ending in their evolutionary flow. And so Gaia and the whole Gaia sphere has, has essentially brought about a collapse. But when that collapse has happened, incredibly rapidly thereafter, the entirety of her innate intelligence has come together in radically different biological forms body types different um, you know types of organism that have then continued that 
evolutionary arc from simplicity to complexity. And what we're finding is that viruses, because they can mutate so quickly, are a significant part of this sort of what's, what's sometimes called reticulous assembly. But it's basically this, this bringing together a possibility, biological I possibility for further evolution. So guess what? Here we are, you know, stopped in our tracks at a point where we have become unsustainable with regard to, to life on Earth because of our, our misunderstanding of what reality is all about and our buying into the illusion of separation, that a virus comes along and literally stops us in our tracks. Uh -huh. And it seems to me, with all its challenges, to offer us an opportunity to reconsider who we think we are, to literally remember who we really are, to literally wake up and remember we're inseparable. And this is what I write about, but this is what the evidence is showing. And it seems to me that the virus, COVID, offers an opportunity to yeah. actually, you know, realize, recognize, uh -huh. appreciate that. And where we go from here, this is our collective moment of choice. Right. Yeah. Now yeah. I have did did you learn all this at Oxford? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I'm just amazed. I mean, you I mean, did they talk <laughs> about this in physics? <laughs> No. no okay. <laughs> it, it, well, first of all, I'm 70 years old. So I was Oxford half a century ago. Yeah. And all this is like the leading edge, the best scientific breakthroughs now. No, I mean, I had my first experience of what I'd call uh, multidimensional realms and this deeper unified nature of reality beginning when I was four years old. Wow. And so I was, I was having a great time walking between worlds all the way up to going to Oxford. When I was yeah, give us an example of what you mean. Okay, what what happened when you were four? Well, the the first remembrance I have is that a discarnate light came into my bedroom, and I started to hear clairaudiently. It wasn't through my ears; it was uh -huh. an inner hearing, a voice, and that just became an ongoing an on uh. ongoing journey um, of clairaudience, clairvoyance. Um, telepathy, remote viewing, mm. but also intuition, you know, because we, yeah. we sort of look at these <clears throat> supernormal, you know, attributes which are natural to us. But our greatest superpower in that regard is our intuition. Mm -hmm. So I've learned over many, many years to hear and listen and honour my intuition and, and follow its guidance. Huh. And what a journey it's been. But when I went to Oxford, um, I was also fascinated when I was a kid with astronomy and I was fascinated with quantum physics when I was a mm -hmm. kid. <laughs> I yeah. should have got out more. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> so I, I ended up getting a scholarship to Oxford when I was 18. Wow. And, yeah. and um, thank you. And um, studying physics. And, and in the time I was there, um, I specialized in quantum physics and cosmology. But no, I wasn't taught any of this. I mean, what <laughs> okay. I'm sharing with this is, is very, very recent. And so, but it gave me the scientific language. So uh -huh. it gave me a discipline. It gave me a methodology. It gave me a language that I was able to, alongside all the other threads in my life and the scenic route I've travelled, uh -huh. <laughs> to continue to be absolutely fascinated and therefore to stay abreast of leading edge science over the last half century. 
when you is, go to a place, hold on, Rob. Okay. As she's talking, I keep thinking of things. Um, when you go to a place like Stonehenge, do you hear the clairaudiently voices about the place? I do, but also when I when I I studied, I researched my PhD in, mm -hmm. uh, in archaeology, in anthropological archaeology. And my thesis was called Walking Between Worlds. Oh, OK. But, <laughs> but it was very much the story of um, the hunter-gatherers <clears throat> of the Mesolithic moving to be the Neolithic herders, pastoralist farmers, mm. the Neolithic. And what that meant for them, perhaps, in terms of their cosmology, because a cosmology is, is how we make sense of ourselves in the mm. world. You know, it, it's it's how do we describe reality? And so if you're a hunter-gatherer, always on the move, perhaps mainly in forests, yeah, along rivers and waterways, um, you have a different relationship with your surroundings than if you settled. Mm -hmm. Perhaps you're doing some herding and some summer pastures and growing crops. So, And, and we see that in that trans transition, our ancestors began to create monuments in the landscape for the first time. Before that, you know, they'd honoured the web of life, it seems, uh, they'd honoured the, the natural places of power. Yeah. But when they moved to the Neolithic, they started to create stone circles, henges, um, all sorts of monuments. Huh. And I think that was that was reflective of their their changing view of, of the world around them and themselves and cosmology. So when I did my archaeological PhD, it was, I was really interested in those ancient ways of, of making sense of, of, mm -hmm. of the nature of reality and how that correlated with the transition we're going through now. Because what we're going through now as we literally with this leading edge science, the old paradigm of materialism and separation, as I right. said, has been turned completely on its head. I mean, in a sense, I think what we're going through now, we'll be going through in these coming years is even more significant than the changes that they went through in their own perceptions. So, yes, I did. Huh. And, yes, when you do a PhD, you have to then get the evidence that validates <laughs> it. <laughs> so, so, Jude, is the, is the academic world getting any closer to accepting the concept of the universe as a conscious entity? And I would say I would say it is. I mean, you may you may not have heard, but in 2022, well, first of all, let's get take a step back to the beginning of the quantum era. The quantum pioneers were realizing that the old mechanistic view of the universe had its place, but it needs to be expanded into a deeper realization of a much more relational, interdependent universe. Mm -hmm. Now, for quantum physics to work at all. It was realized theoretically at that point that our universe in its entirety <coughs> had to exist and evolve as a what's called a non-locally unified whole. In other words, within space-time, the speed of light is the, is the cosmic speed cop. No signal, no information can go faster than the speed of light within space-time. But what was confusing was this quantum realization that the entire universe had to know itself simultaneously it had to be non-locally unified huh. so there was this big debate about either or because relativity was saying cosmic speed limit within space time right. 
quantum physics was saying non-locally unified, Einstein called it spooky action at a distance. Right. He didn't like it because he thought it was an either or. What we now realize it's a both and. Huh. So both within space-time and the appearance of our universe of energy, matter, space-time, yes, there is a limit to the speed of signal, which is why we can have this conversation, mm -hmm. which is why we can say go back 13.8 billion years to the <laughs> beginning of what became a unidirectional flow of time within our universe. And our universe is non-locally unified, which means that the sort of supernormal phenomena that we were just touching on is a natural attribute of a unified universe. Now, Rob, your question was, is science coming around? <laughs> and, and the answer is yes, because in 2022, the Nobel Prize for Physics was given to three uh, researchers, right. John Clauser, Anton, uh, uh, Anton Zellinger, and Alan Aspect, who've been studying the non-locality of our universe at, at large scales, for decades. Now, the mm -hmm. point of this is quite important because Einstein didn't get his Nobel Prize for relativity because mm. it wasn't seen to be settled science. So he got it for the photoelectric effect, right. which showed that light is quantized. Okay. These guys got the Nobel in 2022 because this universal non locality is now deemed to be settled science. Wow. Mm. I've never heard this explained so well. <laughs> I mean, you know, you read books on quantum physics and it's it's like another language, but you just explained it beautifully. Thank you. So one, one of the uh, issues I have uh, reading your book is uh, just personally is the uh, the concept of space-time. I mean, how are minutes and years calculated uh, in the creation of the universe? I mean, there's no... There's no uh, way of uh judging time i would think and and what and and to that extent what about the idea that there is actually no linear time that everything unfolds simultaneously well that's not right um i mean it was something <laughs> that's about 60 years out of date now so <laughs> okay. you huh. catch up with the eight ball on this no it was <laughs> it was called the block universe and it was put in place because there wasn't this understanding that we now have of this flow of time. It was actually put in place before even I think the Big Bang got coined. Mm -hmm. So it goes back a long, long way. And it really is outdated science. It's like, you know, the epicycles of a of a of, a, of an Earth-centric solar system. It's, you know, <laughs> part of that. We've been there, done that, uh -huh. bought t-shirt, moved on. Um, <clears throat> so so no, it, it it's not that, and that's not what we're measuring. The other thing to note is that time, we have a personal sense of time. Yeah. Right. yeah. Einstein Luke. said this, you know, Einstein said so many people said it, you know, I can I can be doing something and I can get literally lost and, and it's two hours. And I thought, oh, it's 10 minutes. Right. Yeah? Or I can be waiting in a in a dentist waiting room and, and 10 minutes seems like two hours. Right. Um, it works both ways. But as a cosmologist, we literally could not be here unless there was a universal objective time frame that mm. goes back to that first moment of the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago and has flowed one way ever since. And the way, reason it flows one way, and Brian Green, the cosmologist Brian Green, wrote a great book about this, is because our universe began in its, in its most ordered state, its simplest state. 
Had it not done that, time could have gone either way. And quantum physics allows for time to go either way. Relativity doesn't. Because what Einstein's genius identified was although space is relative to an observer, time is relative to an observer, he went one step further that's often missed. They need to be considered together as space dash time. And then the whole universe hangs together because that space dash time, space time, is invariant. So in other words, an observation that takes place here on Earth now of a galaxy 100 million light years away would recognize an event happening in that galaxy in the same dimensions of space-time as another observer in another galaxy would also identify that event. And this is key, because if that wasn't the case, if space-time wasn't invariant, our universe just would not hang together. It would literally mean that the laws of physics were not universal. And everything we know about science is that they are. But Rob, this is important. Because what we also now realize is that this direction of of universal time, which would be measured whether here on Earth in minutes and hours and days, doesn't matter. The measures do not matter. Because what we're realizing now at the fundamental scale of our universe or its appearance is something called the Planck scale. And the Planck scale emerges from the relationship of the laws of physics. And it relates to energy, matter, space, time, and temperature. There are five what's called Planck scales. But the point is that when you look at the laws of physics and pull them together, there are four constants, one of which is the speed of light, another is what's called the gravitational constant, and two others relate to, to the quantum world, which is Planck's constant itself, and the other relates to thermodynamics, which is called Boltzmann's constant. Now, that's very nerdy, but it's very important (laughs) because when we put the laws of physics together, those constants can be shared of any measurement that we apply to them. And that means that the Planck scale constant, uh, the Planck scale measures in terms of energy, matter, space, time, temperature, are independent of whatever measures we call them. So for example, the Planck scale of length, which is where the reality, the finite reality of our universe, this appearance comes into being, is minute. It's as tiny as a, to an atom, as an atom is to the whole universe. Huh. It's what's called 10 to the minus 35 meters. But it could be anything we want to call it. And if we were having this conversation on another planet in another galaxy, we could say it's XXXYYY gobbledygook. It doesn't (laughs) matter. It's the same length in space. And And the Planck scale of time, which is what's been unfolding ever since that first moment of the big breath, is even tinier. Wait for this. It's 10 to the minus 44 seconds. In other other words, the whole experience and existence and evolution of our universe has gone from that most minute beginning 
13.8 billion years ago, with that big breath of space expanding and time flowing ever since, and every plant scale moment adds more information, embodied experience evolving within our universe. And Rob, this is really important because I know that there's a lot of folks who say, well, time is illusory. It really isn't. As a cosmo- as a cosmologist, if it wasn't as real as us sitting here, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation. Wow. That's incredible. Absolutely. I guess, you know, there's two senses of time, linear time, and that deeper sense of time that exists outside of time. I mean, when when people travel in uh, space, if they're doing that, they could come back and they would be younger than uh, when they left or uh, younger than Every, everybody they knew isn't that well the, that's a flaw that's another floor nope. okay. wow. that's the another floor in the understanding <laughs> of relativity okay that's another floor Ex- because the, the, the most, well because the most fundamental i mean it, in theory that could potentially happen the issue is causality okay hmm. the one fundamental attribute of the flow of time within our universe is that causality cannot be violated yeah okay so this idea of somebody coming back younger and therefore affecting any historical causality would be it's like it's it's past not go you know you cannot do that so we we're still yet to experimentally go through any possibility and the jury is still open as to how that might happen without causality being an issue because you know what this model is showing us is that the supernormal attributes that I've just talked about, such as telepathy or precognition, mm-hmm. um, don't violate causality. That's the key. Uh-huh. If we understand that, then we understand the rest. And as you quite rightly say, we also have the attributes to, to attune with and communicate with multidimensional realms that are not part of the universal space-time. Okay. Okay. Let me ask you a question. Let me let me let me jump on Rob's uh, bandwagon here. So okay. I, I think I think maybe this is the maybe this is an obvious question. So 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 time travel is impossible. I was just going to ask that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say time travel if it time travel if it violates causality within our universe is impossible. Huh. Okay. Yep. And I'll lay. I, I'm not a betting woman. But I'd I'd lay a lot of money on that one. So suppose you have a precognition yes. where you you know you sense the future. Can you change as a result of that precognition? Can you change an event? I think there's two aspects of this, Trish. There's there's presentiment and there's precognition. Uh-huh. And I think what we're finding is although the past is the past, you know, there is this arrow of time from the beginning of our universe, we are at the bow wave now at the here and now of our universe. But research is showing, and the reason I describe it as a bow wave is it doesn't seem to be a sort of a, a moment cut off. It, hmm. it seems as though from the experimentation and research we're doing, that there's a sort of potentializing of the possibilities that then become the here and the now. So when we have a presentiment or a precognition, we're tapping into those potentialities. So the question then is, can we 
with that realization, because of course they've not come into the here and now, right? So they're not violating causality. Huh. Are we are we able to to change? I've had both. I've had presentiments where I've not been able to change what's then come. Uh-huh. Precognitions where I had a sense that I can, but the question of this bow wave is the way I describe it. Is you know when you see a, a ship or a boat going across a, a lake or a, or mm-hmm. the sea, there is a bow wave at the front. There's all that churning water. Mm-hmm. That's the way I'm describing the, the the sort of the the future becoming the present. But we don't know how far forward potentially that bow wave extends. I mean, the work that Dean Radin has done at Ions, right, suggested mm-hmm. you know very short time, and yet we have other. Um, we have other um, prophecies that suggest the potential of that bow wave can be longer, but perhaps very, very nuanced. Because huh. the further out the prophecies go, the more, you know, they're Rorschach tests rather than, you know, very specific. But nonetheless, the research that's being done and the <clears throat> experimental work that's being done, and you'd expect it from quantum physics, actually that there would be that potential superposition of potentiality, a possibility, not to change the laws of physics at all, uh, to recognise that we're talking about an informational universe. Wow. Where those possibilities, you know, what is our collective moment of choice, for example? Mm-hmm. Well, I asked because we had one guest on who's a dreamer. And right. when he first started doing his dreaming, he was living in Amsterdam and dreamed that very specifically how he how he died. He was assaulted by two men and, you know, woke up and thought he was dead, you know. And he even in the dream saw himself leaving his body and going to his girlfriend's apartment in New York. And he was in Amsterdam. Two weeks later, he got ready to leave for the U.S. and the same thing unfolded. And this time he saved his own life. Right. So where where would that fit? That's- I think I mean I think these are really important you know accounts. I think the, the the difficulty is that the validation of them. Uh-huh. And yeah, I'm absolutely open to all of this. Um but one of the things I think is helpful in in researching first of all I think the scientific method that we have is too limited. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I, 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 you know, from my own experiences as well, I know there are many ways of knowing. I guess the point here, and, and this is where things called meta-analyses are so helpful, is when you get a lot of these accounts mm-hmm. as case studies, then they begin to show patterns. Right. And it's the patterns that I think can help us. Because for me, naturalizing these ways of knowing, naturalizing communications with 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 multidimensional sentience and intelligences is uh-huh. is a fundamental aspect of our conscious evolution hmm. so i i love you know i i really appreciate and i really appreciate it when people are willing to share these accounts and the more they come together the more patterning we can see in them and therefore the the, the, the better grounding we have what's strange is that ma- mainstream science still is questioning the existence of of psychic ability like what you're talking about telepathy you know precognition well you know 
You know, when at the beginning of the quantum revolution and relativity revolution, um, you know, people decried that, as I say, Einstein right. did not get his Nobel <laughs> for relativity yeah. because it wasn't settled science. And even now, it's taken 100 years for the Nobel in 2022, more than 100 years, to be given to researchers that uh-huh. are really revealing or helping to reveal universal non-locality. So what I'm writing about in the Cosmic Hologram and and, and the story of Gaia aren't just my ideas, as you've read. They bring together the research of, of tens of thousands of researchers, mm. you know, across all scales of existence and numerous fields of research showing the same thing, showing that the appearance of our universe, its energy, matter, space, time, isn't its fundamental reality that it's mm. it is reality but it arises its appearance arises from deeper levels of non-physical and intelligent causation as meaningful information so and holographically uh-huh. manifest so we're putting all the pieces now evidentially together that enables this 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 new unitive understanding of the unified nature of reality that that converges it converges with universal wisdom teachings with spiritual teachings with indigenous teachings right and so you know science is science good science always goes always follows the evidence wherever it leads uh and i think more and more scientists are acknowledging this and coming to this party and, (laughs) and um i think this next couple of years next few years is going to be an absolute sea change. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Well, and, question. And, 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 well, Go ahead. Hey, real quick, just off that, because yeah. because I think that's something that uh, I think that's something that gets conflated a lot these days is uh, <laughs> people see technology people people see technology uh, evolving quickly, and then you hear people and then you hear phrases like the speed of science. In actuality, science is very methodical, very process oriented. Science is actually a process. <laughs> it's not. It it, it's so 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 you know. So the 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 yes, there's science behind this the the technologies we use, but the evolution of that technology is building on top of uh, on top of uh, science that's that's actually fairly old. Well, yes and no. Um, I agree with you. The technologies has, I mean, again, go back to the beginning of the quantum relativity eras. The things that were being discovered were very, very unsettling to the majority of the researchers. And some of them, such as Max Planck, Schrodinger, Einstein and others, you know, were open to what the evidence was showing them. And some of them did go to the Upanishads, did go to the Shnavari Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita and many others mm-hmm. and realized that what they were discovering, you know, had been written about thousands of years right. before. But because of that was so unsettling, because it was bringing consciousness, the nature of consciousness it, as, the, as the elephant in the room. And, and that was too unsettling for most of the researchers. So that got pushed to the side for nearly more than a century, really. Mm-hmm. And so, Rob, as you say, it was technology that the focus was then on what can this new science tell us technologically. And that's been the speed that's come to this point. And, and you know, incredible ways. But the deeper questions and the deeper realizations are only now being brought 
front and centre because the evidence is not allowing them to be peripheralized anymore. Huh. Because what the evidence is showing us now is that mind and consciousness aren't something we have. They're literally what we and the whole world are. And this, of course, was the, the, the view of <clears throat> Planck and Schrodinger and others. So, but we now have the evidence to support this. So this is meaning that we, you know, we can't go on in that old, well, we can, but, you know, the old paradigm of materialism and separation is literally being turned upside down because the evidence is showing us that it is no longer the deeper perception of the nature of reality. Well, you know, somebody like um, a physicist David Bohm, for instance. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, where he says it's all, you know, everything, even space time arises from this inner order. That That's basically what you're talking about with the yeah, universe. Exactly. Right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And David was talking about this. I, I, I must, I heard this the other day and I need to go back and check. But I was told that the first time he still came forward with this was in 1952. Mm -hmm. Now, if that's right, that was the year of my birth. <laughs> uh -oh. and, of course, and of course he talked about the implicate order giving rise right. to the right. order. Uh -huh. but he also talked about active information and uh -huh. at the time there wasn't sufficient understanding of the nature of information meaningful right. information there wasn't any understanding of what's called the holographic principle. Mm -hmm. There was any understanding, which is a lot of my work, about expanding the laws of thermodynamics to the laws of infodynamics. Mm -hmm. There was none of that, and there was hardly any of the evidence that I've included in the cosmic hologram and the story of Gaia, because most of this evidence is in the last decade. Huh. So he was an extraordinary pioneer. Yeah, he really of was. Now is, is, is really coming forward and being you know, validated. Um, and I think, I mean, we used his his theory about the implicate and the explicate, eh, explicate to try to explain what synchronicity is, yeah. you know, because, be, and, and it, it fits, you know. And this is, this is what I write about, which is why uh -huh. I write about, you know, what I'm writing about, the cosmic hologram. As, right, as it's the same, first, yeah. Uh, is, is exactly that. That synchronicity, supernormal uh, attributes and phenomena, intuition are all part of a living, conscious, right. unified, multidimensional evolutionary universe where mind and consciousness literally are what we in the whole world are. And none of that violates causality within uh -huh. space time. Yeah. It's so interesting. The whole life cycle to unfold, and yet still the ability to engage with and communicate with these other dimensions of sentience. Whereas Rob said earlier, you know, do not have the linearity of the time within our universe. Right. Hmm. So if we, we live in the explicate uh, and the everything is derived from the implicate order, does that mean that before there was the universe, the implicate order existed? Well, I don't tend to, it's a great question, Rob, and I don't tend to use Bohm's implicate explicate uh -huh. because I feel they're a little bit superseded. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is they, they still sort of, he never understood how the implicate could become the explicate. Right. And what I've been able to do now in these two books, but also with thanks to all the evidence of so many researchers as well as my own work, is showing how our universe is created. 
And it does so in a sense because when we go <clears throat> beyond our universe to what Einstein called cosmic mind, what spiritual traditions might call uh, God or Allah or great spirit or great mystery, um, we realize that that infinite and eternal cosmic mind has thoughts. Uh -huh. <laughs> And we might like to call our universe a great thought, which Sir James Jeans, the great Edwardian uh, philosopher, did. A great thought, a finite great thought of an infinite internal cosmos. And uh -huh. of course, in, in this understanding, God, great spirit, the creator is not out there. The creator and the creation is all one. Uh -huh. It's an experiential differentiation of a great thought and where we are microcosmic co-creators, evolutionary co-partners, if we, you know, respond to the invitation, it seems to me, of our universe in this well, great unfolding story. Well, I, I would think, too, that your concept of life after death is very, is conscious. Yes, of course. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's pretty Absolutely. cool. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, experiences such, such as near-death experiences, afterlife, life, mm. continuation, uh, afterlife, um, communication, multidimensional uh -huh. communications, engagement, archetypal intelligences are all part of this expanded grandeur mm. of a multidimensional, living, evolutionary, unified, meaningful, purposeful yeah. <laughs> universe. Wow. Another question, uh, at the creation of the universe, the, the breath, great breath, there was no matter. So where did where did matter come from? How does Why is there matter at all? Well, first of all, we need to understand that energy and matter are incredibly ephemeral. When we dig down into quantum scales or lower, you know, they're not the atoms and protons and neutrons and electrons, aren't the little building ball, billiard balls that we might have been taught at school. Mm. We go down to a 99.999999999999% no thingness where what there is, is relational fields of information. Mm -hmm. So the appearance of energy matter, the appearance of space time arises from these deeper non-physical realms of causation as meaningful information. Uh. In other words, the stuff of our, the appearance of our universe is meaningful in dash formation expressed as what we call energy matter and in a complementary way as space time. And just to put the cherry or the icing <laughs> on the top of the ice cream sundae, <laughs> that our entire universe is essentially a holographic projection from the boundary of what we call space time, which is why as space expands and as time flows forward, our universe can embody ever more meaningful evil, uh, meaningful information and purposeful evolutionary experience. Oh. So it all hangs together on that basis. But we have to then go beyond the 20th century perspectives mm -hmm. of the appearance to the deeper fundamental realities. And this is what Bohm was talking about. He just uh -huh. didn't know at that point how it happened, right? how it hung together. And we now are understanding to a greater degree, although it's, a, it's still a work in progress, it's always a work <laughs> in progress, um, how that, that occurs. Oops. And the other thing to say is that Roger Penrose, mm -hmm. 
who I first met when I was at Oxford all those years ago, won the Nobel Prize in Physics a couple of years ago because of his work essentially on the holographic principle. So again, this is becoming settled science. Well, you know, Michael Talbot was ahead of a lot of people when he wrote The Holographic Universe. I think that came out in 1992. And he wasn't even a scientist. (laughs) He was a journalist. Yeah. Bless that man. But I I suspect I'd have loved if he'd have been with us still because I I know, me too. So excited. So excited. But clearly, he had a very powerful, both, um, you know, intellectual grasp, Uh but also, I suspect, intuitive grasp. Right. I think so too. Yes. Definitely. And he writes a lot. He wrote a lot about his own experiences and uh, in this book, uh, just you know, some amazing experiences. Yeah, yeah. I love that book. Now I'm yeah. going to have to. Okay, now how in, in your cosmic hologram book? Tell me what. How does that differ from what? I mean, obviously it's a lot farther ahead of where Talbot was in 1992. But do you? Do you is it the same type of principles? What it, you've been talking about. It's, it's much further along. I mean, uh-huh. 1992 to 2017. Right. And what I've been able to do as a cosmologist, because of course Michael was brilliant, but he was a journalist. He wasn't uh-huh. a cosmologist or a physicist. What I've been able to do is really bring all the science together in a model, huh. as I mentioned earlier, by expanding the three laws of thermodynamics to three laws of infodynamics. Uh-huh. I've been able to sort of show how information expresses itself as as conserved quantized energy matter secondly how information expresses itself as what i call in tropic space time the first allows the universe to exist the second to evolve and the third law is is showing how this this temperature uh, and an information relationship plays out through the whole life cycle of our universe wow. so by bringing all that together and with a holographic principle and all the evidence, I've been able, I hope, to lay out uh, a sharing of where, you know, we can now, I hope, literally turn that old paradigm of separation and separation right. on its head. <clears throat> oh, okay. Would you say that? Would you say that the? Would you say that the entire universe exists within each one of us? Then, well, in the sense it's holographic, we are a pixel. Right, uh-huh. yeah, that's yeah. Right. yeah. And just as we are 37 trillion cell community, each of our bodies is a 37 trillion cell community. You know, the point about holograms is the whole is in every tiny pixel. Exactly. Right. Right. Every pixel. And it's the old hermetic tradition of as above, so below, as within, so without. So, you know, as a unified universe, we are inseparable from its wholeness. And we're part of, of what, you know, I think David Bone talked about. It's holoky. Uh-huh. Of scaling up and scaling down a multi-level communities of relationship. You know, it, when the when the when the indigenous wisdom tells us or invites us to connect with all our relations, literally the whole universe and every aspect of its existence are our relations. We are part of a universal family of consciousness, of life. <laughs> You teach? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I I would love to take a class from you, my God. I've never heard this stuff explained so well. Thank you. Uh, Funnily enough, I I have been just invited by Humanities team. So I'm doing a, I'm I'm uh, co-teaching a a 16-module course with Andrew Harvey. 
Ah, ah, coming up, ah. and I'm also doing one called Our Conscious Revolution, Our Transformational Journey <laughs> to Whole Being and Belonging. Because this wow. has shown us we belong, you know. Right, right. We belong. Yeah, that's sweet. I would like to. I would like to hear a conversation with you and Andrew Harvey. That would be Boy, interesting. I know. That would be fascinating. <laughs> oh, it's already out there. We had a fantastic <laughs> session with Steve Carroll yeah. and the folks at Humanities Team. It was just it was just fabulous. Yeah. And it's a free program. So if uh, you go to Humanities Team, that that one hour. And Andrew's wonderful. So, yeah. Where, where can we find that? Um, I think just uh, go to Humanities Team. Okay. Uh, as a website, and then um, just you know, Google for for Andrew and myself. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So, this Jude, is... is the is the universe continuing to evolve, and what does that mean? Yes, Rob, it does because it's been on this journey for the last thirteen point eight billion years. I mean, yeah. the hydrogen in our bodies and in the waters of our planetary home Gaia, the hydrogen is as old as the universe. It's a few wow. moments less than the age of the universe. So, you know, our story is the story of our universe and vice uh, versa. So it's been evolving from simplicity to complexity and ever greater levels of individuated self-awareness and collective interdependence ever since. So, yes, and it seems to me that, as I mentioned earlier, we're on the bow wave of its here and now and it's continuing evolutionary impulse because it embodies this impulse to evolve. So for me, this isn't so much about our biological evolution. It's our conscious uh -huh. evolution. Mm -hmm. It's waking up to all that we've shared today. It's waking up to this grand and most wonderful adventure that it seems to me we're being invited to literally wake up, as Ken Wilber said, and grow up and clean up because of the trauma of separation and show up and link up and lift up and level up and light up. And what an amazing invitation to become co-evolutionary partners, conscious co-evolutionary partners with our beloved planetary home, Gaia, and our entire universe. Huh. Wow. So... So what about what about global warming? Where do you stand on that? And where, what's our future? Well, what I would say is that, you know, the old paradigm of materialism separation, mm -hmm. it seems to me we've had a dis-ease, a separation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that has, you know, separated ourselves from each other, from, uh, from our planetary home and the entire universe. Mm -hmm. And the point is, uh, uh, so worldview of separation in that worldview, um, injustices, inequalities, exploitation, conflicts, and natural behaviors. When we turn that completely upside down to remember, we are literally inseparable from the whole world. Hmm. Then it seems to me that different behaviors emerge from that. Behaviors of relationship, behaviors of justice and peace, and harmony and ultimately belonging. So we're in a process, yes, of climate change. And to what degree, and I my research suggests a very great degree, is our is our misunderstood treatment, our exploitation, mm -hmm. our destruction of environments, our yeah. utter disruption of Gaia's incredibly intelligent way of balancing <coughs> the entire Gaia sphere 
we have disrupted on a huge scale and, and uh. exploit and destroy. The point is, the sooner we wake up, the sooner we can hopefully help to alleviate the worst of this. I don't know whether we, I don't think personally, we can stop some of it and it may be very, very challenging. Yeah. What I do feel is if we don't wake up, we're going to go extinct. Mm -hmm. And we're going to take a lot, as we already are, a huge amount of Gaia's 4 billion own planetary story God. of evolution mm -hmm. with us. And mm -hmm. for me, that is unconscionable. Oh, I just, yeah. you know, the very thought of that. So anything that I can do, and I don't want to be pointing fingers and I don't want to be playing a blame game at all. When we're not aware, we're not aware. But the more of us that are becoming aware of this, the more we can share this new story, this unitive narrative of wholeness. Mm -hmm. And unity isn't uniformity. It's radical diversity. <laughs> it's empowering. It's To me, it's empowering and inspiring. And it offers us authentic hope. Mm -hmm. And our young people, authentic hope. And our children's children's children hope. So why wouldn't we do all that we can to serve and, and to, to, to share and to support a collective choice, a personal collective choices? It seems that the younger people are, the more they're aware <clears throat> of climate change and the, what's going to ha could happen in the future. As the older people, there's less interest, I guess, or less knowledge or less willing to- Less awareness. Less awareness. That's awareness. It's yeah. all awareness. Yeah. Yeah. It's all awareness, Rob. And to be honest, I think anything that you guys can do, anything that, you know, I'm doing what I can do to share the message that that old paradigm of materialism separation right. is bullshit. Yeah. Right. It's BS. <laughs> it's outworn any possibility of benefit. It really has. You need and to lecture to politicians. <laughs> you, don't, you don't think I am. I don't want to lecture anybody. <laughs> no, I know. I'm just saying you, yeah. you need to talk to politicians like this. Okay, guys. <laughs> and I am. And yeah, I okay. am. And I'm talking to CEOs and I'm talking <laughs> Good. to transformational leaderships. I'm talking to educators. And I'm, mm. I'm basically, my mum used to say, I'll talk to anybody. And I, <laughs> and I am and I will. Yeah. <laughs> So, Jude, we're but, coming to the end of our hour, but I, I have one question. I should have asked this earlier, uh, but uh, this is seems to me almost a, a mystical thing with uh, solar eclipses in that. So the moon apparently was created when a large object, a planet or whatever, crashed into Earth, broke off and formed form the moon. Now, when we have a solar eclipse, the amazing thing is the moon perfect perfectly fits over the sun i mean the, the we're our distance to the moon the moon's distance from the earth or from the sun it just that is amazing can you can you explain that <laughs> it is wonderful it is truly a cosmic amazement and it's 400 you know 400 times the size 400 right. times the, yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> um i'm i'm a both and person in the sense that um, I'm open. I mean, I've been a mystic as well as a scientist all my life. 
Right. A lot of the information that I've received, I've received through other ways of knowing uh -huh. science. And it seems to me that every time, and I've experienced, I think, four um, total solar eclipses, and they are transformational. They are extraordinary. Yeah. So in whatever way that this cosmic magic has arisen, you know, I thank, I thank the universe mm. for it. And I, I'm sure that, you know, we have so much still, we're at the beginning. Yeah. We're at the beginning of, of being sort of, you know, we're beginning to sort of grow up, hopefully, <laughs> as, hopefully. As, as a universal species. <clears throat> I hope, I hope, I hope, I trust. Yeah. What mysteries, what adventures, what wonderful stories are still open to us. And that's the right. point. I mean, I, I like you, I just look at that and go, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and I'm very open to mystical bases for that. Right. And we oh. didn't even get into the question of other life in the universe. And yeah, I was going to ask ask you if you thought that that what happened on Mars, if there was there ever life on Mars and what where it they looks scrub? as though there was. It looks yeah. more and more as though there was. And we've got flybys of Jupiter's moons uh -huh. coming up um probably at the end of the decade. And also, you know, we've got a number of moons like Europa, probably possibly going right. to meet, um, possibly Titan, you know, uh, that are able because because of the tidal forces within them, because of their proximity to Jupiter and Saturn, uh -huh. um, uh, it could be warm enough for liquid water um, under their ice crusts. And we've seen some early evidence for that. Um, as I write about in the story of Gaia, you know, it looks as though certainly Mars and possibly Venus too, uh -huh. as well as Gaia, were water planets to begin with. Mars is a bit too far away from the sun and too small. Mm -hmm. to have been able to possibly go beyond early stages of a biosphere. Venus um, went went greenhouse and very, very hot, and therefore anything would have evaporated. But what we do know is that in the interstellar dust clouds and clouds of dust and gas that are forerunners for planetary systems, there's vast amounts of ice. Mm -hmm. You know, the analysis of water on, on our planetary home shows that possibly 50% or more of it is older than our solar system. Wow. Hmm. We also know that there are thousands of what are called exoplanets out in our galaxy. There's now a, a, a view that there are more planets in our galaxy than the stars. Hmm. And that's probably pretty much the same throughout the universe. Now, Gaia is very special. We could have a whole program just on this. <laughs> but, 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 but. Biological life, the universe is evolved to create biological life as part of its journey of evolutionary complexity. The harbingers of biological life were already the organic molecules, the prebiotic molecules. We found all of those building blocks in gas and dust clouds in our galaxy. Yeah. Mm. The more yeah. we look, the more we find. Yeah, it's fascinating. My my dog is sitting here listening to you. He he even sat down. It's like he's got this rapture expression he, on his face. He wants to go to the dog park. Yeah, he says, I know your hour is up. Yeah. Thank you very much, Jude. Oh, this Jude, has been this fascinating. Has been, this has been great. I'd love to have you back on. Let me read your cosmic holograph first. <laughs> and we want to please, have you back on. Please do. And we could do a whole, a whole session just on 
Gaia's journey, because the uh-huh. story of her planetary journey is extraordinary in itself. But whatever you'd like, I'd be delighted to do okay, that. Okay, well, thanks so Great. much. This Thank is just you. A, and John, when does the link for this go up? Uh, well, it should be today. Okay, and, so uh, I'll and, send you the link. And, and Jude, where, where can people find you if they want to find yes. out more? Um, John, thank you. www.wholeworld-view.org is the best place. Um, the books are, you know, all over. Um, but wholeworld-view.org is probably the best place to find not only what I'm about, but what I co-founded six years ago and what we've okay. been doing ever since. Cool. So yeah. thank all right, you great. all. And, well, and we'll share so word. We'll, sh- we'll, sh- we'll share the link through inner traditions and we'll share okay. it through our own whole world view okay network. great let's, let's late yeah <laughs> let's, yeah yeah Let, let's let's get oh, hold let's that story hold that story let's let's just get right into it let's uh, do our intro yep yep, yep. We okay. need to, yeah capture the content That's good. yeah all right if y'all are ready to go uh yeah. in three two one welcome to the mystical underground thank you for joining us this is rob mcgregor and trish and- mcgregor and our tech magician, producer, John Posey. You can go to themysticalunderground.com where we make regular posts and where you can find out uh, about our books. Our most recent nonfiction book is The Shift, reports from the Mystical Underground. Trisha's latest novel is White Crows. And Rob's audio edition of Indiana Jones and the Staff of Kings is now available free of charge at, on SoundCloud at the Mystical Underground site. Okay, our guest today is Andrew McPherson, a world-renowned photographer working in Hollywood. His first book, Two Million Miles, was published in 2006, and it showcased his photographs working with top fashion magazines such as Vogue and Bazaar, as well as many of the icons of the entertainment industry. His work has regularly appeared on album and magazine covers and movie posters. It can also be seen on his Instagram feed at Andrew McPherson underline official and on his two websites um, McFly for the day job and his personal work is on uh, www.andrewmcpherson.com. Andrew was born in England. He dedicated himself to photography the year his mother died when he was in his when he was 13. He surprised his father by telling him that he that she was going to die when his fairy came to tell him the news at school. His experience with spirit came again when at 18 he spontaneously channeled the spirit of his deceased godfather at the gathering after his funeral. After that, there was a long gap of quiet until he reached 26. Then a floodgate of experiences and dreams opened his eyes to the mystery that contains all that is known. Following that, he kept encountering other people whose lives had been changed or influenced by spirit, and that, combined with his ongoing experiences, inspired him to write A Question of Spirit. Welcome, Andrew. Welcome, Andrew. Yeah, why don't we start right uh, when you're in your mid-20s? Uh, we're just starting to talk about that. Uh, <laughs> well, tell us about being 26. <laughs> yes, so, I mean, it's funny. It follows on from what Jude was talking about in her interview. And 
I literally, one of the first things that happened was I had a dream about the nature of time. And in that dream, the nature of time was shown to me as kind of bundled, coiled, like coils of snakes all bundled up. And I, I, I was one of those dreams, you know, when you wake up and you're like, my God, that was so loud and so crisp. (laughs) And I didn't really understand what it meant. Well, then in the following days, I started having dreams about literally things that happened in the following days. And I had seen them the night before or two nights before in my dream exactly as they happened. So it really started kind of throwing me off. I'm like, how how can time be a linear unfolding if it's possible to see things which haven't yet happened? Precognition. So, <laughs> yes. yes. And, and, and um, that was kind of a, a, a real beginning for me. And then, um, you know, spirit really arrived in my life when I was 29, when um, uh, a spirit which i wrote wrote about in question of spirit it's the lead it's kind of the lead chapter to uh-huh. question of spirits essentially a book of interviews because i wanted to make sense of my experiences so i went out and tried to find as many people as i could who'd had experiences with spirit to try and make sense of it um spoiler alert i never did the mystery <laughs> is greater than the known and everything that exists is contained within the mystery. So I actually never got to the end of the rabbit hole, but (laughs) the learning has been extraordinary and, and humbling. It's a continuing quest. It really is. I mean, you know, even if we look at the universe, we don't know what it's contained within. We don't know what was here before the big bang. You know, we we literally exist within mystery. And then, you know, I mean, it's funny following on from Jude's um, podcast, the big I really enjoyed. Um, but, you know, everything is built on nothing or on nothing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like her, uh, the way she said it wasn't the big bang. It was the big breath. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. She called I thought it. that yeah. was great. Uh, yeah. Andrew, I love your definition of human life as being the spirit's way of communicating or interacting with matter, that's similar to what uh, has become something of a slogan in the metaphysical world. That is, we are not humans seeking a spiritual experience, but rather spirits experiencing a human experience. But let's turn it around, uh, going the other way. What's your definition of death? Well, I'm... I. You know, I've had so much experience now with spirits um, of those who have passed over that to me it's just creation and destruction, whether everything in this dimension is a duality, whether, you know, of course, electricity or magnetism, but also creation, destruction, good and evil. And um, we come into this physical being as spirit entering a life and each life is like a wave we are all essentially surfers this each life is a pulse of energy and we are surfers in this dimension of energy of energy and time so we come in we do this dance where we get to experience birth growth and then eventually death this is our wave to ride and my current 
a feeling about it because I would never claim to have knowledge. My current feeling is the reason to be here is to celebrate creation, to see what it is, to experience it and to celebrate it. And I don't really hold with those who say that, you know, it's about suffering or it's about all of this. Right. Have to find <clears throat> the beauty and the joy. The the you know to, I mean it's a, to me I've worked obviously a lot with musicians and there's uh, there's such magic in music. Music is held within time, whereas what I've done photography is taking moments out of time. But music is held within time. But you go back to the campfires of the ancients. And the music is the moment when the tribe is the most united and it's united in joy. You know, it's it's the campfire, it's the dance, it's it's the party. And that's, you know, all youth seeks out the party. You know, as you know, whether, <laughs> as I mean, we all did when we were kids. The parents are away. It's like, come on, let's have a party. But I, I think the joyousness is the key of life, is experience the joy, just like a surfer has joy riding a wave you know our responsibility in this life is to experience joy and then you know when we pass back over the only thing we can take with us is the love and the joy we've experienced in this existence in in this moment or in this or riding this wave uh, uh andrew do you think that the spirits you've communicated with do you feel that they can see the future or are they totally in the present or whatever I, I this is I, they are very much in the present when i uh -huh. have channeled spirit myself or when i have experienced spirit the unifying experience has been messages of love uh -huh. or guidance for what is happening at the moment and you know in my i mean especially because all of this began for me before the internet so i went uh -huh. i you know i seeked out a lot of mediums and psychics because I wanted to talk to them about their experiences and I'm not really I don't think it's really possible to tell the future you know I think on on all of the readings I've had all of them the psychics I've spoken to I would say 30 percent maybe have some kind of accuracy in prediction i think what people are able to do is read the energy that uh -huh. is around you your wishes your desires your feelings the direction you're going with things i think i i it's weird because destiny seems to exist and yet the future seems to be impenetrable impenetrable god i can't say the word <laughs> um but but yet, you know, in my dreams, I have seen the future. So I, I don't know. I'm I'm truly mystified by it. Yet, uh, did I ask you about, I did ask you if you'd gone to Casa Dega, right? Yes. No, yeah. and I haven't. Okay. You need to. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I think so. you would fit right in. <laughs> <laughs> so villages, uh, mediums, basically, and... Yeah, some of them are good, some of them maybe not so. Yeah, yeah. but it's so an I, interesting place. Yeah, so I was wondering, Andrew, has your photography applied to your investigation of spirit uh, at all? No, not at all. And Trish, you did send me the the work of that um, that lady who had tried to take photography into it. The, the I had an in question of spirit. There is, I had one experience 
which was fascinating. Again, I wrote about it in the book and I mm. interviewed the girl whose name's Carolyn Park, who's perhaps the most psychic person I've ever met in my life. But um, she was a fashion model and I was doing a fashion story for actually Elle magazine. And um, she came into the house here and she said, uh, oh, no, wait, let me just jump back. <laughs> About three months before this happened, a friend of mine who knows my interest had said there was a very powerful psychic visiting from England. So I invited him over. We had lunch here on the balcony. And after lunch, he said, look, I'll do the cards for you. And he read my cards. Interestingly, not tarot cards, a plain deck of the 15 cards and he laid the cards out and he said a few things and one of the things he just stopped and he looked up at me and he said you're going to photograph the spirits but you're going to think your equipment is broken but it's not <laughs> seeing spirit and I remember you know I put it in the back of my mind and I was like okay fine anyhow three months later I'm doing this shoot with English L and um the 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 fashion editor who is again was she herself she's now actually working as a as a healer she stopped she le left fashion and is now a healer she said to me you're going to really enjoy this girl she's got a lot of psychic <laughs> ability so this so we did the shoot at my house here in LA Carolyn Park walked in the house and the first thing she said was like the spirits here and I said don't worry <laughs> it's John he's a friend I know who he is. <laughs> she proceeded to have a two-day conversation with this spirit, John, who's had a, a big influence in my life. And as we were doing the, the photographs, um, it, this was in the days before digital, when you would do Polaroids to check mm -hmm. the exposure and to check everything before you shot the film. And all across the Polaroids were these streaks of light that I'd never seen before or since. And... You know, it was um, it's kind of a mystery to me because it's you know, I know the equipment and I know everything. But of course, when this started happening, Caroline's talking literally to John as if he's in the <laughs> room. And then I'm remembering what this psychic had said three months earlier. And, Jeez. you know, and so I did put one of the Polaroids in the book. Yeah, that's Actually, not, yeah, that's I an saw incredible that photo. Yeah, the, the problem with the the psychic photography is that it, I guess it can be fake so much. Like in this book that uh, Trish sent you, or, uh, you know, she has a lot of photographs, but she blatantly says, you know, she she created them that yeah. that, that they're not spirit uh, contacts. They're just kind of. Andrew, did I send you the picture of the spirit dog? <laughs> no. OK, I, after after the show, I'm going to send it to you it's from a friend of ours who lost her dog. And that evening. She her security camera captured this spirit of the dog. I mean, it really looks like a dog hovering above the dog's favorite spot to sit on the couch. Yeah, it's, so yeah, it's pretty impressive. I'll send it to you, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, the, the, there's you know, there's my I've had so many experiences with spirit, but I'm it's hard, it's hard to know, like visually, I've been more claircognizant and clairaudient. I've I've actually seen with my eyes nothing nothing. I mean, a couple of times I've had images in my mind, but it's my, you know, the way that I've I've experienced spirit is is really claircognizance and clairaudience. That's been the 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 strongest impressions I've had, curiously. And I've I've always thought that even trying to photograph it, even if you could, it would look faked. 
Mm-hmm. You know, because yeah. what are you going to see? Smudgy yeah. light. I mean, essentially, <laughs> it's energy that's there, but on a different dimension. And um, and I, I mean, I had one of the perhaps best spirit stories that I have. Um, one of the interviews I did in Question of Spirit was a, a medium here in Los Angeles called Hollister Rand. I don't know if you've come across her by name, but she's published a lot of books and she's very known, at least here on, you know, in L.A. Uh, and um, she's she after I interviewed her, she said, you should come to my psychic development workshop. And so I was like, OK, fine. And I did. <laughs> I did the two day course and then I did the, the three day advanced course. And. One of the things I took away from that was it was mostly women. I was the only guy there. (laughs) So it's very connected. I feel all of this is very connected with the feminine side or female intuition. Uh Of course, I spent my, you know, my mom was a fashion designer. I've spent my life working in fashion. So I'm obviously, you know, very attuned to the feminine side of things. But anyhow, on the on the fifth day of doing all of this development course, I was sitting in front of a woman who, you know, we would do how how she was doing the work was we would read each other. So you would, you know, you would pair up, she'd give you exercises. And I'm sitting in front of that woman. And in my mind's eye, I see this supermodel looking figure dressed in a business suit with her hair flowing in a sports stadium with all these flags <laughs> flying. And I'm like, what the hell am I seeing? I can't <laughs> possibly tell this woman. But, you know, it seems so irrational. And at that moment, Hollis Naran walked up to me and she said, Andrew, you can see the woman in the sports stadium. Tell her. And I, was oh, like, God. Oh, <laughs> and I did. And it was this woman's grandmother. She was the. Oh, she, wow. My grandmother had been the first manager of an American football, female manager of an American football team. And she came through with a message of love and clarity for this woman. But the image was so strong and it seemed so unrelated to the woman I was looking at. I was afraid to tell (laughs) her what I was seeing. Had you communicated that? anything of that to Hollister before that? Or she just picked it up on what you were seeing? She just kept literally in the classroom. She just walked over and she just said that. So wow. there was wow. she. There was no way at all that this. The, there was no way for this to be anything other than we were seeing the same thing in our wow. minds. Right. It's fascinating. Uh, is she still practicing in in LA? I but yes, because I still get newsletters from her. Uh-huh. Huh. Yeah. Her yeah. last name is Rand, R A N D. R A N D. Hollister yeah. Rand. Yeah, uh-huh. pretty cool. And her, I really enjoyed her. Her psychic development workshop was actually a really great five days experience. You know, it was uh-huh. really, uh, you know, to walk away with what I would call something so proof proof positive. Mm-hmm. I mean, she did say some things like, you know, just because people have passed over doesn't mean that they're they're good you know they take the good and the bad you always uh-huh. have to protect yourself and make sure that you know what you're dealing with is of the good hmm. yeah but uh, pretty cool yeah you, you have a story in your book about a child who's two and a half years old remembering a past life i was fascinated by that because it was like she went into a trance this little kid i think they're in a car and yes it, uh and it seemed like she was almost possessed by like a former self. And uh, that, uh, can you talk a little bit about that? That was really interesting. 
Yeah, that was a fascinating story. And that, you know, came, that was a connection sort of through a friend of a friend. And um, I, you know, weirdly enough, the, the child didn't remember it. And as an adult, still doesn't remember it. But the two parents in the car heard all of this. And it was literally like, your, you know, your child in the back seat is kind of going into a trance. Oh, they were talking about a family like a family illness, I forget the illness, but it was some kind of some kind of a liver thing, if I remember correctly. But right. it's a family illness that had gone through several generations, huh. and the the child literally kind of went into this trance and said, "I'm not going to get this. I or I passed of that in my last life." And then she went into this whole thing of her last life in a village in the south of I think it was the south of India. It was in India. Huh. And wow. she remembered her whole life, her, her, you know, the the village, her parents, the, the 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 her siblings, and she basically described her whole past life, um, and then you know, kind of suddenly, you know, snapped out of it. the The father was so freaked out that he didn't know that he was going faster and faster in the car. And then he got pulled over for speeding. And when the police, <laughs> when the cop car came up behind them, the, it snapped the daughter out of it. And she didn't even remember what she'd said. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> how, how, has, um, how has synchronicity played into your whole thing, investigation Mass of this? Spirit? Oh, my gosh, massively. And funny uh -huh. enough, it was your talk on synchronicity that I listened to over Christmas that got me to, to just go, you know what, I'm just going to email you. Synchronicity <laughs> has been, and that's something that comes in waves. There are uh -huh. times when you notice everything kind of aligns, and then there's times when it sort of descrambles, if you will. Mm -hmm. Synchronicity seems to be sort of the evidence that... Right. Thing that that you are aligned with what you're meant to be doing mm -hmm. when it falls out of alignment then you know i think it's it's time to recalibrate yourself mm -hmm. but i i don't understand it but as a witness of it it's been an incredibly powerful thing in my life mm -hmm. and you know honestly with synchronicity i think is luck and i you know i feel like my life has been defined by luck, I could not claim to have had the journey I've had or gotten where I've gotten through anything other than luck. And, and that luck and that synchronicity seem to be very much, you know, harmonized. So in yeah. a sense, it's the voice of your, it was the voice of your destiny. Do you think? Uh -huh. I think so. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's the, the whole discussion of destiny is such a hard one because has all of this already been written? Has it already <laughs> happened? Are we experiencing something that has already been? Are we, you know, as souls, as spirits, are we entering into some a script that's already been written, events that have already happened, and this is our experience of them? Or is this truly a mysterious unfolding of something that has never happened before? And that's where... I, you know, I honestly, I can, you can argue for both. Uh, it could I, be a I don't, it, it, it could ahead, be a combo, it could be a combination <laughs> of both, really, you know, that you come in with a certain destiny, but you have free will to uh, change things you but the you're, you're, you have a certain pattern in your life that you're 
you're entering. That's one way of looking. I mean, I, I, you know, if you're pro the argument for destiny, you don't have the ability to change anything. You're right. going to experience what <clears throat> destiny has written. The only thing you can do is alter your attitude to mm -hmm. what. Yeah, I don't like the word destiny because it, it implies something fixed. Exactly. Yeah. And and uh, you know, but then then if. It, it it may if it if you but we can't argue it either oh, way. You're right, I know. You know, because <laughs> essentially all of this is a firework. <laughs> so it's a holographic firework. So maybe it is all written. <clears throat> yeah, that's why we need to have Jude back <laughs> to sit for about five hours and teach us all. <laughs> I know. I I have to say I was really blown away by by I what was too. I was, you know. I really would love to talk to her more about. The thing you know the things that she she's really getting to something that i think is really key and you know, it's funny because the the she talked about the word or the wave and i've thought a lot about sound and music uh -huh. when you think of the energy in every atom i mean one one of the best conversations i had in in um question of spirit was with the, a, a pair of scientists, Maria, who's who led the team that won the Nobel Prize for um, proving the Higgs boson exists at the Large Hadron Collider, and her fiance Eric, who's the world's leading export expert in quantum teleportation. Huh. That conversation blew my mind. The, you know, the first thing I said. So what's the, you know, can you explain the nature of this reality? And he said, well, <laughs> you know, what was here before the Big Bang and what's the universe expanding into? And the first thing they said is, you've asked the two questions in science you can't ask. And they <laughs> proceeded to tear science to shreds, saying it's a dogma. Science is like a religion. It's a, it's a dogmatic belief. Mm. Truth is always changing. Knowledge is always changing. And what we, you know, and I mean, there's that cliche of, of science pro progresses one funeral at a time, but it, <laughs> it does because the people who come up with an idea get fixed on that idea and then nothing mm. changes until after they've gone. Um, but there, it was fascinating to hear their take on on the limits of science and the dogmas of science. But, you know, I said, so what's an atom look like if you make it the size of a football stadium? And essentially... <laughs> It's not there. There's nothing there. It's it's charged. It's just charged fields. There aren't little golf balls whizzing around like <laughs> you know, we would show in at school, which again, right. uh, you know, Jude had, had talked about exactly that. All of this is um, it's energy. Where does this energy come from? So is it is it a frequency? Is of is it a vibration? So I know on you know there's. Um, one of the things I've listened to a lot is 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 the UFO stuff that, that uh -huh. is in in the the field of 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 you know the, of, of the mystical underground. I've three times seen craft, and I've had one dream where I was shown and taken in a craft. And when I you know, and I, it it was a dream, but when I woke up from it, I saw myself coming back down oh, wow. into, into my body. So it was a it was an extraordinary dream where it could have been real. But um, 
the, the I was taken inside the craft I saw, and all three times I've seen the craft, it was a round metal, they've been round metal spheres, just look like a giant ball bearing in the sky. Huh. Um, How do you and, know you weren't up there? Hmm? How do you I know don't. you weren't? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I kind of don't, but um, I kind of don't, but yet, you know, was it a dream or was it, I, I, I it's, it's really hard to tell. I, I uh -huh. feel like it was a dream, but it could have been real, but I don't know. But it was, I mean, the, the, I can describe the inside of the craft incredibly clearly. It was on three levels. The middle level was all white and it was um, essentially the, the living space. The upper level was obviously a dome and, and there was only one chair. It was a one person craft. Huh. And um, I, when I entered the dream, I was standing at the back of the room with a hand on my shoulder and the, the, the person who I was with said, don't, don't look at me. Don't turn around. I'm going to show you the craft that you saw. And I'm standing in the room and he said, and the voice, which was, you know, I don't remember if it was male or female, but it was a soft voice said, this is the, this is the living space. This is the storage for everything huh. we need for the travel. <clears throat> and so we walked and it, you know, the, the craft was about the size of a UPS truck, if you know what I mean. So uh -huh. you're not talking about a big craft. So we walked to the end where there was a staircase, walked up the staircase, which arrived in the middle of the dome and there was a single chair. So the stairs come up, you walk around, you sit in the chair, put your hands on effectively what looks like two iPads. And as soon huh. as you touch the two iPads, the entire craft effectively vanishes because the outside is all micro lenses. The, the what looks wow. like a steel ball bearing is actually all micro lenses. And when you put your hands on the pads, you see what is outside the craft because the floor and the dome is all screen. So as huh. soon as you touch the pads, you see you see what where you are and what's outside the craft, and then it moves by thought. And so the character said, what would you like to see? I said, I'd love to see the Andromeda galaxy. <laughs> Just like you changed the TV channel, I'm looking at the Andromeda galaxy wow. from above it. And the Milky Way is a tiny little dot way off in the distance. And when I realized how far away I was, I had a, like a, a moment of fear. It's like, oh, shit. And then <laughs> as soon as I had that moment of fear, I saw myself dropping back down wow. into into my body, you know, back to back to earth. But I was actually at that time I was camping in New Zealand. So I saw myself coming back down from the sky to the camper van and enter the camper van. So wow. it know, sounds it, real, Andrew. It, it was a very <laughs> it was very real. I can't tell you if it was a dream or not. Yeah. But it, it was a very real experience, but it, what was really interesting to me was the fact that the the the, the craft was able to move by thought, yeah, which is, is that's that's yeah. and so if this universe is indeed consciousness, if mm -hmm. this is as as Jude had you know, right, proposed, then it makes absolute sense that that you could move through thought and you know the fact that there are so many ufo sightings now i mean you know and, and it's becoming almost such a normalized thing <laughs> and as craft that i had the experience of both seeing and the dream of 
these are camper vans. These are not intergalactic traveling ocean liners. These are camper vans. They're, they're designed for short trips. Huh. So if you're doing a short trip, you're not doing interstellar, you're not doing interstellar space. You're doing interdimensional hops and skips. Right. Yeah, but to the Andromeda? <laughs> I mean, that's that's gotta be far. <laughs> it's far. I mean, it's far if you do if you it's far if you're doing it with a rocket engine. Right. It's it's right. you know it's it's before the last ice age, probably uh -huh. even longer. Yeah, uh, interesting. That, that may be where how uh, space travel ultimately will take place. Not uh, give up on the attempt yeah. to Do use the all these engines to uh, move physically, but uh, through our minds or through our spirits to transfer to different uh, dimensions, different uh, parts of the universe. You I have mean, a did, wait. Yeah. I want to ask him a little bit more about this this dream. Uh, did you ever see the person? You didn't, right? Huh. No, never did. He, I mean, because the when the voice said, "Don't turn around," right. don't look at me. I I I just was. I I I I felt like I had to respect it. I felt like I was getting an um, you know, I don't know. It felt sort of like a. I felt like in the dream. This was an ex I was being given a gift and, you know, I wasn't uh -huh. anything to, you know, it was a trust. I felt like it was an act of trust, if you mm -hmm. will. Now, when this person sat down and put hands onto the iPads, where were you? Were you? Behind oh, no, I was the one putting the hands on. The oh, iPad. you were. OK. Wow. Yeah. You know, the, he 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 was behind me or he the this. The, and so with the all the time, the hand was on my shoulder. OK. My mm -hmm. right shoulder. And I was guided up the stairs. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the chair was right there. So the stairs came up. You know, if you imagine the dome and the chair right. in the middle, the stairs came up diagonally behind the chair and then so you know it, he he just sort of took me around and said okay sit in the chair oh okay hands on the, you know on the arms and so on the arms were these sort of screen like things like as if two ipads were set in the uh -huh. screen and then as soon as you touched them it activated the craft oh he also did explain to me the bottom third of the craft the the bowl was the motive power unit and you never even you there is you don't even have to go in there what whatever it was was powering it it was you know it 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 required no maintenance or fuel you you know it was it was built into the craft was there any noise that you could hear any sounds huh interesting that's interesting yeah it uh, is. so uh, it sounds like it was a, a lucid dream that uh, you really felt at the that, very minimum <laughs> yeah, that you were there. You also have a chapter about extraterrestrial life late uh, in the later part of your book, and where you you ask the mediums. Uh, you have uh, I don't know six or uh, five or six seven mediums that you were interviewed, and what surprised me is they all answered, but they all I think most I maybe I didn't catch all of them that. They, they seem to never have had an experience themselves, uh, which which I found surprising. Hmm. I did too, to be honest. <laughs> but, but, you know, just based on the, especially, you know, based on what we now kind of know, that, that if this is all consciousness, life and the existence of the universe seem to be incredibly harmonized, which again was why Jude's interview is right. so interesting, because... 
I think life probably, it's almost impossible it doesn't exist everywhere, but, but conscious life to get to the point uh-huh. where where we've got, I mean, you know, think how long the dinosaurs were here, how long it took life to evolve to this level of consciousness. So life seems to be an, an essential part of creation, to think we're the only place where life right. exists is is it's almost more absurd than just thinking life and creation are completely aligned. Well, did this being or this person or whatever ever explain to you what he or she is doing here? Nothing. Okay. Interesting. No, I mean, in, in, in that, in that dream, the, the, per, it was, I was being shown the craft that I uh-huh. had and the, the craft I, I, I saw, I mean, the, the, you know, the first time I saw the craft, a, a craft, I was in an airplane taking off. I was coming back from a job in, um, I'd been working randomly in New Orleans about three weeks before um, Hurricane Katrina. And oh, interesting, totally randomly, I was there photographing Matthew McConaughey, and <laughs> as the plane was taking off, flying out of, um, uh, coming out. We were probably about thirty thousand feet, but we were in what I call layer clake clouds. You mm. know, where there are, you're going through one layer and another right. and another, and you can see all these layers. And I was looking out the window, looking down at Louisiana, and then I saw this round craft pass by in a gap in the clouds below us i only had my eyes on it for maybe two seconds long enough to see it and be good like what the hell is that <laughs> and it was it was maybe you know, my dad was a pilot and i spent a lot of time in my childhood in light airplanes so i feel like i'm very good at aircraft recognition and knowing what things are and it was definitely not any kind of a balloon it was a it was a yeah. round craft and it was going under its own speed but I didn't, it, you know, it's like, oh, that's just weird. But it, it was, it was, you know, it was so quick that it's like, you kind of didn't quite believe it. But the second time I saw the craft, it was in Los Angeles on the hillside with 180 degree clear open sky, blue sky, not a cloud in the sky, perfect afternoon sunlight. And at first, you know, it was actually, I was with my, my ex and she saw it first and we're like what is that is it a helicopter because you know when a helicopter's coming at you right it's round but you see the rotor blades up above and so we were looking at it like where are the rotor blades where are the and by the time it was close enough that we realized what it was i knew there wasn't time to run inside and get a camera and try and photograph it because it was going too quick but so i literally uh. i we we stood and, and watched it fly by effectively down sunset boulevard wow. going out to the west and both of us were like so sure that it would be in the press the next morning it would be all over the newspaper ufo flies down sunset boulevard <laughs> scoured the internet scoured the, the the news somehow we were the only two people who saw this thing wow. and you know which is really <laughs> really confusing how can you yeah. live in a city of eight million people uh-huh. you know, in the middle of four airports with all the radar <laughs> that they have you know between lax santa monica van Nuys, and burbank this thing just flew straight down Sunset Boulevard. Wow. At, at kind of the height and at the speed that you would expect a police helicopter to fly. So, you know, 1,500 feet, doing about 150 knots. And 
clear, I mean, just completely clear. And about the so, so ah. size of a UPS truck, but if you made a UPS truck into a, a metal sphere, and it was so, you know, under just completely clear. When and at that point, I was like, okay, they're here. <laughs> there's no denying it and it was really good to see it with someone else because yeah. you know you, you, then you know yeah yep that's real yeah that's yeah. really real i'm not um, cuckoo <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly that, this is not this is not hallucination this yeah. is for real there it you is know, the fact um, that you know the fact that you saw this and your partner saw this and nobody else reported it it reminds me of an, ex an experience that trish and i had a, a couple of years ago we went to barnes and noble in our oh, just thinking of that neighborhood so we went inside and uh i was in the metaphysical section and i saw a ufo book that i'd never seen before so i picked it up and bought that book and uh we went outside in the parking lot and there was this Something above us, uh, maybe 500 feet, 700 feet, but it, it was just like a light. Uh, we couldn't see the uh, anything but the light. And we stood there staring at it. It was right above the parking lot. And all these people were walking by. Nobody looked up. You know, nobody stopped and said, <laughs> what is that? And, and so we just it's just us. <laughs> yeah. Just looking at it. And so after Trish finally said, well, I want to go over to Walgreens. So we got in the car. <laughs> <laughs> and so we drove to Walgreens, which is very close by. Uh, and uh, Trish went in. I stayed in the parking lot and I looked and there that thing is, whatever it is, was, had moved over uh, through these trees and uh because I, I could no longer, I thought, well, I'm not going to see it anymore because we're, we're located. But no, it had moved over and there it was again. <laughs> it, uh, and there was uh, never any report of it in the news, nothing. Right. And I had no sound. It, it, I never, we never saw it move at all. Uh, it's, uh, so I mean, that's are, the, you know, that's the thing is that, I mean, the, the, there is, again, the mystery is greater than the known. But yeah. You, you know, I mean, I don't, it's the same. I don't understand how nobody saw the one that we saw. But then <laughs> that dream I had came about six weeks after the event, after seeing it. So in, in terms of time, it was pretty close. It was either now, like six or eight weeks later. Now, okay, the craft in your dream, was it like the craft you saw? You yeah, it was, it was the, 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 the person or the, 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 the entity showing uh -huh. me the craft said, this is the craft you saw. Oh, all right. Interesting. So, it, so I think, I mean, whether it was he meant the same kind of craft or the actual. Or the actual craft. craft yeah. Yeah. But oh. it, I think it was the actual craft. There's hope, Rob. Yeah, right. <laughs> Somebody will say, yeah. OK, we're taking you up. <laughs> then there's uh -huh. the whole question of the connection between uh, these uh, extraterrestrial interdimensional beings and spirits. Uh, mm -hmm. Whitley Strieber writes about seeing uh, somebody who is deceased with uh, with an uh, alien being or whatever they are, you want to call them, he calls them visitors. And, uh, you know, it, it, you can look at it two ways that actually there's an interchange or that, that they, they can move into the same re afterlife realm. Or that they're showing you that person that you knew to make you feel more comfortable that, you know, that's somebody you know. Uh, so, you know, you can look at it either way, whether it's a projection or it's actually, you know, they're. Well, they're... I think part of his his theory is that they 
they do inhabit the same realm. Yeah. You know, they're not they're not in separate dimensions. Which would make sense because if yeah, it if, would. You know, if if all of this is an act of creation and it's all basically a, a web of energy, you know, it 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 would make sense that these beings and spirit are i mean i've you know the that's the that that what i call that dream is the only experience i've had with a with a different entity all mm. the others have been spirit and so definitely spirit exists beyond this physical reality i mean there's to me there's absolutely no no question of that have but, you ever asked john about this which my, the john that was with yeah. No, I mean, I, <laughs> he hasn't been around for a long time. He very much was, I mean, he was kind of like a guardian angel to me for maybe uh -huh. 10 years. But then someone who I, you know, was who, who I was then working with said, you know, he needs to go. It's his time to move on. So I did a ceremony to huh. send him on. And he did rather sadly, he took his own life in real life because he had manic depression. He was suffering bipolar disorder. And I, you know, it's, it's almost like he, I, he gifted me with the things he had wanted to experience huh. his own, in his own life, if you will. And um, so when they, what, wait, when they move on, where do they move on to? Again, back that, into another life? Or <laughs> I, I I mean that's there's it there are kind of it feels like in there are it, it, there are almost like we the, the containment of this reality has wrappings if you like and uh -huh. the next layer from this reality is that reality of the spirits but then beyond that are more realities that we can't access from right. here and they can't come through Do you, if, if, if that makes sense this is again this is not knowledge this is just my sense right but yeah. you, you know are, you also you also ask that question to the mediums too where do they go what is it like mm -hmm. yeah and mm. what was their general view of the nothing that nothing that i remember <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But I, I think what I remember is that they were so different. Uh, they had yeah. they had very uh, you know uh, wide ranging ideas of uh, what they would experience. You know, it's fun. I mean, it's funny because I actually haven't read the book <laughs> in year in say in years. But you know, I wrote it maybe five years ago. So, oh no, no more. Twenty fifteen. Twenty fifteen. Yeah. Yeah, eight years ago. And so, uh, weirdly enough, in my world of photography, where you're always taking pictures, one of the techniques I have for editing pictures is saying memory is the best editor. The picture you remember when you look at the picture, you know, you're the uh -huh. film, the ones you remember the day after are the good ones because they stay in your memory. So the takeaway from Question of Spirit, the things I really remember are the childhood stories of the of a lot of the mediums mm -hmm. but there's one medium and i didn't i don't know his real name because he was working i by by pure luck <clears throat> um, again this is synchronicity i met the guy who is the accountant the cfo 
for this big enterprise called Calif what is it called California Psychics, I think it is. Yeah. It's, huh. it's one of the 800 pound gorillas that, you know, <laughs> phone in psychic service. And they, okay. I was talking to him, you know, I met him at a dinner and I started talking to him about the whole psychic thing and said, oh my God, I'd love to, you know, I'm doing this book. I'd love to interview some of your mediums. And he hooked me up with several of their best mediums to interview, but they all had to be done on pseudonyms but this guy ah. he had been a, he from England too he had been a postman in England and he became fascinated with music and with John Denver and he had this whole thing of of the key of life you live your life in a key of life the songs you like the music you like life it's like the again it's harmonics and music and that's one of the other really big takeaways he's someone i would love to reconnect with and hear where he's gone with you know with his studies and his work because i think what he was on to was really something powerful which is you know the harmonics the key of life uh -huh. and how music is is itself such a channel i mean we know the church tried to control music for 2000 years essentially right is but that the one who, failed <laughs> uh, is it is that the one you're speaking of who also went to this uh tribe in south america and spent time with the uh, shamans uh oh no that was that was the would that was another guy okay but that he was fascinating too his stories were amazing yeah, he he seemed to. One uh, one of the things that I took away from that, he says, our influences in the Western world come from all over. They come from the East with yoga. They come from Europe. Uh, uh, but with this tribe, it's singular. This is their history. This is the, yeah. their their spiritual quest is has never been influenced by any outside. Uh, influences at all it's just always been them and it's he, he considered their experience to be pure in that sense that's like the uh tribe that lived at the top in that colombian city where we went the kogi Indians. the kogis yeah. right yeah oh what was that yeah <laughs> uh we used to lead adventure tours to south america in the 1980s and oh. um we would take uh, we would take riders uh, and they would go free of charge and we would uh, we took three trips up into the upper Amazon uh, and but we also went to the uh, lost the, city the lost city of mm. uh, Santa oh. Marta uh, it's near Santa Marta I can't remember I can't the, remember the name of the city name, oh oh. Yeah, it was called the Lost City. It was San yeah. from Santa Marta. And where the only way to get to this Lost City was either had to walk for five days or take a helicopter. Well, we were on this trip with uh, like, uh, I don't know, eight or 10 people. And so we, we took two helicopters and went up there and, and spent some time uh, up there with some archaeologists. And uh, one on on uh, one of the trips, we did this a couple of times, uh, the storm came up and everybody left and but i got stuck rob I got, got stranded I, I got left behind everybody gets back to the hotel and i'm not there they just they, no nobody said anything uh, uh that i, I was did just, i said well, where yeah, were you no nobody i mean the pilot or nobody said that oh, we yeah. left some we left somebody behind so when i get left behind there with an archaeologist or two and then the kogis come out of the woodwork and i had a very interesting uh time up there that evening
Oh wow! Did you? What did you experience? Did you? Did you learn anything? You know, fr from them, if you will. Um, I, I can't recall anything right off the bat. I just remember they had these archaic guns from the nineteenth century, the rifles <laughs> that they were carrying, <laughs> and uh, they, you know, they're they have a. The, the men are all weavers and it's like they're weaving the universe. And they, what, mm -hmm. one of the things I remember is that they said that uh, each morning they, they have these rituals they go th through just to make sure that the sun comes up uh, for, for another day and that they called themselves the elder brothers. And they call us in the Western world, the younger brothers, the people with the helicopters and the airplanes, and uh, and that they were kind of responsible for keeping our existence going. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bless! <laughs> and that is so. That's fascinating. I've always wanted to do the the ancient temples of South America, but you know, seeing the the pictures, some of the um, you know the. The stonework looks, and even in Machu Picchu, looks am amazing. It looks like there's stonework from a much earlier era. And I guess, I mean, all I'm sure everyone who's listening and all of us are fascinated by, you know, Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson and all right. of these, you know, these ideas that perhaps there really was a civilization before. And the very fact we've been the creature we are with the ability to reason and think and communicate for what 300,000 years they now think that, you know, the idea that our, our everything began at 6,000 years ago, you know, now Gobliteki, you know, 12,000 years ago, but it seems ridiculous. And so the, the, I think we live in an exciting time where perhaps we will start for the first time to see the civilization before and you know for years we've heard psychics and mediums talk about lemuria and atlantis and right. i've always been a bit like really really but now more <laughs> and more it's like oh yeah maybe i want to go there <laughs> yeah <laughs> pick me up <laughs> yeah i know but it is kind of fascinating that that and and i think those a lot of those the stonework in south america perhaps hints at another time because it from the pictures i've seen it looks like the foundations of some of the the things uh -huh. like each you show a completely different foundational structure and then the stonework on top is a, a, a totally different style yeah what we what we were taught in school in our times about is not what, true <laughs> what what native americans were primitive uh beings that uh you know lived in uh you know uh teepees and there was i never learned anything about these great fortresses and uh pyramids that exist uh just to the south of us uh it's right. you know it's 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 another uh you know they 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 were here a long time ago and uh had an advanced civilization and the mayans you know had uh Math, advanced mathematics, astronomy that, uh, you know, is hard to explain. And I mean, you know, the, the, I mean, and for, you know, the from Egypt and the Mayans all over the world and in Indonesia, we see evidence of massive stretches of time in observing the stars. They knew mm. about the precession of the stars, the, right. you know, whether they <clears throat> necessarily knew that the Earth 
axis was to it was wobbling on its axis or whether they thought the heavens was wobbling i don't know but but they had observed what we call the procession of the stars which is 22000 years i think it's it's uh-huh. a huge time chunk so you know they they already had a massive observational history and you know we all you know we all know the story of noah well i i grew up you know on the south coast of england and um in a very shipbuilding sailing area you can't build an ark without an extraordinary amount of shipbuilding knowledge mm-hmm. so the ancients i mean to me the greatest clue we have of the nature of the ancients is they were navigators they were sea people because the only way you have a legend of an ark is you know how to build boats really well uh-huh. build a big boat you have to know how to build boats really really well yeah. And there's probably you know, influences from maybe other worlds uh, and or the spirit uh, domain in in learning all of all of these uh, you know, studies and history, their history. Yeah. yeah. Well, how do we tap into that? <laughs> this is, I, you know, this is something that I've I have been in really intrigued with because, you know, we get glimpses in dreams in foresight mm-hmm. in 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 you know in deja vu but we get glimpses that all of this i mean i do feel like i mean people you know you talk about the akashic records when i was younger there was that book many La- masters many lives and when i first came to la in the late 80s i was very i got really interested in past life regressions and I did 40 of them. And, you know, because wow. of the dreams, I've always kept dream journals of everything. And after getting to about 40 past life regressions, I kind of, I, a penny dropped. And I went, you know, I'm not, these are not lives I have lived. These are lives that have been lived. And mm-hmm. I'm able to access, access right. all of this information through hypnosis. You're, you know, you're, when you quiet the conscious mind, through the subconscious mind, you can connect to what Jung would call the collective subconscious or mm-hmm. the Akashic records. So all knowledge is there for us, but we just don't necessarily know how to <clears throat> access it. And I've I've tried, you know, with meditation and with everything, you know, mushrooms and you name it. <laughs> it's really hard to access it. Hypnosis seems to be a good way, but it's a good way to get things you need to learn. I would mm-hmm. say that my, my experience with past life regressions, you get told the story you need for what you need to know exactly. at that time. Yeah. And so is it internal or are you connecting externally or is the internal pulling from the external what you need to know in this moment? Kind of feels like that. But again, I don't know. The mystery is greater than the known. You know, some years ago, there was a book by a a healer. He was a chiropractor, Eric Curl, and he had developed a new healing technique, which didn't involve touching anybody. It was hand motions. So a friend and I went to one of his workshops in Alabama, and what he had you do was work on somebody you didn't know, a stranger, doing these particular hand motions. So I was laying on the table, and the woman, the stranger started doing these hand motions and all of a sudden the top of my skull blew off literally it felt like it and a a light shot out 
of the top of my skull went through the ceiling. And suddenly at the top, I saw three alien beings peering down. And I thought, oh, who are you? <laughs> and they were friendly. They were just curious. And about four years later, during Hurricane Francis, Robin and her daughter were all asleep. The animals were all asleep. I was laying in bed listening to the wind and thinking that the that the skylights were going to blow off. And all of a sudden, the same thing happened. And I saw them. I thought, okay, I'm okay. And I fell asleep. <laughs> when I woke up, the hurricane was gone. So I don't know. You know, I've asked, okay, where are you guys? You know, make another appearance, <laughs> whoever you are. <laughs> it was weird. I mean, it. you know, one of, I mean, it's funny, one of the, that reminds me of one of the craziest moments of my life happened. I was, I before I left England and emigrated to America, so we're talking like the mid, late 80s, um, I, I was looking after someone's dogs in, in England. And the, I had this one dog whose name randomly was Merlin. Merlin used to love. <laughs> to catch the ball. And so I had, you know, those bright green tennis balls uh -huh. that you throw for the dogs. And this was, you know, I didn't have a, a throwing stick. I was just throwing it by hand. And it was kind of a gray London day, just kind of, you know, the end of the day. So it's kind of dark. But these bright green tennis balls, they're clear to see. You can always throw them. And so I threw it for Merlin and it bounced on the ground. It bounced up in the air. And in front of my eyes, it just vanished into thin air. Oh, God. And I, and I was looking at it, rubbing my eyes. to say, it's fine. Merlin's going to find it. Merlin's going to find it. And Merlin's running around looking for the ball. And I'm like, how the hell did that happen? And I'm staring into the space where my ball had vanished. And suddenly it reappears coming back towards me. Oh, Some wow. The, I, it just popped back into, into vision and it came back and it bounced and rolled up to me and Merlin ran back and grabbed <laughs> it at my feet. I was like, how the hell did that happen? Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's like there's certain times when, when the dimensions collide or something. Yeah. Oh, it's, yeah. yeah, that's fascinating. But you know, um, Andrew, this has been fascinating. Oh, it's been to, great. We're gonna have we're gonna get you and Jude on at the same <laughs> oh my time. God. I would <laughs> love that. That would that be would, such a good conversation. That really would. That, that would be interesting, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, the hour went so fast. Amazing. Oh, it really uh, did. It was great talking to you. And um, great. I love what you guys are doing. It's great. It's really it's 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 nice because I do feel you know we all feel I think maybe a little alone or separate. Yes. <laughs> You know, so it's right. really nice being able to hear what you're doing. It's well appreciated. Thank yeah. you. But now tell people how they can get in touch with you, where your book is, all that. The book's on Amazon, A Question of Spirit. Um, I think it may even be free on Kindle if you if, oh, okay. if Kindle files. I never got around to doing an audio book because, um, you know, it's too many voices because it's all <laughs> interviews. Yeah. <laughs> and other than that, I mean, you know, on Instagram, um, Andrew McPherson official, or, you know, on the um, mcfly.com is the work site and andrewmcpherson.com is the, the you know, the pictures I love to take. Okay. Or the person. So, you, so you're still active as a photographer then? Yes, although I'm actually now working with um, a, a medical group who are bringing all these amazing products to market. So I'm huh. working with them kind of as a, a creative director. Photography is the most beautiful thing. And I feel so gifted to have been able to do it as my life work. But now over 60, 
you get aged out. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a, it's the media, it's a young person's business. Uh -huh. You know, I mean, I got to do what I love for 45 years, right. which is amazing. Um, but if you now, ever come to Casa Dega, please contact <laughs> oh, us. We will yeah. meet you there and okay. do, do photography. You know, it'd be great. It's a great place to, to do, to take pictures. <laughs> I will, you know, I will, I, I have, I, th I mean, you know, I have friends in Florida, so the, I'm sure I will have reason to get there. And I know <laughs> next year I want to go to, I think it's not as far as Florida. I think it's in more in the Nashville area, but there's the eclipse of the sun next right, year. Right, the solar so, eclipse. Yeah. 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 So I want to go out that, to go east for that. But if I get to Florida, is that where you this, guys are based? Yeah, yeah we're, so in, we're in South Florida, uh, near West Palm. Okay. Yeah, perfect. That would be great. Ooh. Okay, Thank you so much. Oh, this has been so much fun. Thank Thanks so much. Yeah. This has just okay. been great. Thanks for joining the Mystical Underground. Visit www.themysticalunderground.com for the latest blog post and book info. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Listen to the podcast at podcast.themysticalunderground.com. Follow Trish and Rob on Instagram at Trish and Rob McGregor. Follow us on Twitter at The Mystic Cast. Send email to podcast at themysticalunderground.com. And until next week, thank you for listening and stay mystical.